every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to Money Talk for Tuesday the 23rd of January 2024. I'm Peter Lewis and this is the programme that brings you the latest business and finance news from across Asia each weekday morning. Thank you for making us one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and Singapore. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has dropped out of the US 2024 presidential race and endorsed Donald Trump. The surprise video announcement came ahead of today's New Hampshire Republican primary, where Mr. DeSantis was polling in the single digits. Today's primary will now be a clear two-person race between Mr. Trump and Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, who later served as Mr. Trump's ambassador to the UN. The People's Bank of China left its lending rates unchanged at its January meeting yesterday. The one-year loan prime rate, which is the medium-term rate used for corporate household loans, was kept unchanged at a record low of 3.45% for the fifth consecutive month. The five-year rate, a reference for mortgages, was held at 4.2% for the seventh straight month. Sony has abandoned its $10 billion merger agreement between its Indian arm and Z Entertainment, the subcontinent's largest listed media group, after two years of talks. The deal was set to combine more than 75 television channels, film assets and two streaming platforms and would have created an Indian media powerhouse in the world's fastest growing large economy. The Japanese group said in a statement on Monday that it had sent a termination letter to Z after a tense weekend of negotiations failed to salvage the deal. Taiwan's export orders unexpectedly plunged in December, highlighting risks to the global economic recovery. Orders for Taiwanese exports plummeted by 16% year-on-year, far worse than economists' forecasts of a quarter of a percent fall and reversing a 1% gain in the previous month. Export orders fell the most in Europe, followed by Japan, the USA and mainland China and Hong Kong. Demand increased from ASEAN countries. For the full year of 2023, export orders were 15.9% lower. On today's Money Talk, I'm joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, David Roche, President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Each morning, there's a daily newsletter to go with this show, and you can find it on my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street's Monday, the Dow continued its ascent into uncharted territory. At its session high, the blue-chip average rose around 245 points, trading above 38,000 for the first time ever. It closed 138 points higher, or 0.4%, at 38,002. The S&P 500 added 0.2% to 4,850, also reaching a fresh all-time high. The Nasdaq Composites, that advanced a third of a percent to 15,300. 60, and the Nasdaq 100 index rose 0.1%, also to a new all-time high, and taking its gains over the past 12 months to over 50%. The technology sector climbed 2.4% in the session, making it the best performing of the 11 sectors that comprise the broad index. The yield on the US 10-year Treasury note fell below 4.1% after touching four-week highs of 4.15% last Friday. It ended the session three basis points lower at 4.11%. The two-year note was unchanged at 4.39%. 
The US dollar index was steady around 103 and a third on Monday, holding on to gains from last week. The Japanese yen was flat at 148.09 ahead of today's BOJ meeting. And in Shanghai, the Chinese yuan was unmoved at 7.192 renminbi. Chinese banks were seen selling US dollars in the onshore FX market, according to Reuters. Gold ended the session with losses of 0.4% at $2,020 an ounce. The Brent crude oil contract for March gained 1.9% to settle at $80.60 a barrel. And Bitcoin, whose price has been sliding since the SEC approval of Bitcoin ETFs on January the 10th, fell further on Monday. It was down 4.4% at one stage to an almost two-month low of $39,750, taking its decline since the ETFs were launched to 15%. And Hong Kong stocks sank for a second day Monday as pessimism over China's recovery this year deepened. The Hang Seng tumbled 348 points, that's 2.3%, to close at 14,961. It hit a 15-month low and it's inching closer to a level unseen since 2009. The latest decline brings losses in the city's benchmark index for the year to 12.2%. And just a reminder, it shed 13.8% for all of 2023. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index plunged almost 7% to a new record low. The Hang Seng Tech Index tumbled 3%, with Metroan down 4% and Tencent falling 3.3%. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index of Hong Kong-listed Chinese companies, that fell 2.4%, taking it to October 2022 lows and a little over 1% away from dropping to the lowest level since 2005. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite, that tumbled 2.7% to close at 2,756. That's its lowest level since March 2020, and it's down 7.3% so far in 2024. The CSI 300 of the largest listed companies in Shanghai and Shenzhen hit a new five-year low yesterday. Our futures markets are pointing to a rebound in the Hang Seng this morning of about 245 points. That's 1.6%. Uh, the index projected to open just above 15,200. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. It's time time to welcome our Tuesday morning guests. We have with us Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning to you, Mark. Good morning. And also with us, David Roche, President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy, somewhere in Europe. Morning to you, David. Hello. 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 And over in South Carolina this morning, Charleston, I believe, is our US economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Morning, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, everyone. And are you uh, following the, uh, the, the, the Republican primaries? In a, there's going to be a, a South Carolina one next week, I believe. Yeah, I won't be here for that, but I'm really following South Carolina because of Nikki Haley being in South Carolina, from South Carolina. I'm really following just the uh, New Hampshire, which comes up in 
as you have said, just in a few hours. Okay, well, former Mm. Governor Ron DeSantis has dropped out of that race and endorsed Donald Trump. The surprise announcement came ahead of today's New Hampshire Republican primary, where Mr DeSantis was polling in the single digits. And today's primary will now be a clear two-person race between Mr Trump and Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, as Barry just mentioned, who also served as Mr Trump's ambassador Mm. to the United Nations. Well, Barry, Nikki Haley wanted, didn't she, a one-on-one with Donald Trump. She's got it, but will this help her? We don't know. I mean, the experts, the pollsters, they say no, that uh, Mark and I were just talking that Donald Trump retains a very substantial lead in North Carolina, in New Hampshire. But, uh, you know, anything could happen. This is a open primary in the sense that you can walk in and you simply have to declare that you're a Republican and then you can vote in it and you have to be a registered voter. But, you know, she could pull an upset. I think it's important, Peter, because if she loses, as the pollsters predict, then let it be said, probably Donald Trump has got the nomination. So early in the process. Um, what, what is it? What is the attraction of Donald Trump? Almost an obsession, isn't it, with with some, uh, quite a large number of Republican voters? Yeah. And it's an expectation as well among many Democrats that Trump would win a general election. I'm shocked. But I think I'd answer your question this way. <clears throat> People are really upset with the way the country is evolving, not economically, but rather on social issues. And particularly, number one, the southern border. I mean, is it 10 million people that simply walk across? I think everyone has seen the pictures. Uh, These are people who, uh, you know, may or may not get a piece of paper from a border guard that says, come back in a couple of years time for hearing on your asylum application. So you can call these people asylum seekers, but most of them are not even going through an official channel. They're simply walking across. And the fact that it's such a big issue is because most people, I think it's fair to say most people in this country, think that essentially the southern border is wide open. Wow. So, but Mark, I mean, when was it? Uh, eight years ago, people were surprised, weren't they, when uh, when Donald Trump won uh, the election and rather taken off guard? What What about business leaders? Are they making preparations now? Do they need to be making preparations for a potential Trump presidency? Well, you may remember, Peter, we were actually talking about that election central as Donald Trump was being uh, mm-hmm. elected eight years ago. Uh Look, the the economist, you may have seen the lead story today, is companies are preparing for a Trump presidency. And that really came out of Davos, where, where, where that's a lot of the talk. Yeah, obviously, in a lot of different areas, there's concern. We just, we, we had meetings, uh, our CEO forum had meetings in December in, uh, in Hong Kong and in Singapore of our, of our members. It was a critical issues meeting. And the, there were six I mean, about six or seven critical issues came out even more than that. But among the top ones were a second Trump presidency, as well as a, a, a Chinese, China property crisis, uh, problem with Taiwan and AI and Internet. But still, it's right at the top of the list and worried about what would, especially in key areas like like industry and energy and, and, and many others. And obviously, in terms of uh, political political connections, especially geopolitics which could change fairly dramatically. So yeah, he's in a very strong position. 
Uh, Tim Scott from South Carolina, the senator from South Carolina, has dropped out and endorsed Trump. And he's, Barry can tell you, he's he's stronger in South Carolina than Nikki Haley is these days, for example, and could be a vice presidential candidate. So a lot of things are falling into place. So I think at this point, there are a lot of things that are going to happen. There are still trials going on. There are still indictments. Who knows what's going to happen in the next few months? But I think, you know, from, and this is going into the U.S. politics a little bit, I think this puts a lot of pressure on President Biden and the Democratic Party, and they have to maybe rethink what they're going to do going forward. Who's who's the best candidate, assuming that that Mr. Trump does win the nomination? David, what are your thoughts as well as businesses fretting about this? What can they do? Is, is there anything they should be doing to prepare for uh, a potential second term? First, uh, <clears throat> let me give you my naive forecast. Uh, number one, Trump will be the Republican candidate. And number two, Biden will be the Democrat candidate. And I think to define what Trump means, he's a cult. And the second helping we will get of Trump will be even more rabid than the first. But it will not persuade anybody who is not already a member of the cult to vote for Trump. I think what it will do is bring out a lot of Democrat voters, potential Democrat voters, who are on the lower end of the social scale and will be motivated to vote against him. So my second forecast is that democracy is saved by an orange whisker. <laughs> why orange? <laughs> well, you know why that comes from the orange whisker. <laughs> but unfortunately, that does not that does not really save democracy, because honest Joe Biden staggers into his second term, and during it drops dead. And we then get a dose of Kamala Harris, who, as we all know, and certainly the aides know, cannot really read and remember or understand the instructions on a cereals package. <laughs> You're cruel. <laughs> so you end up you end up with a democratic decline. And the real question to my mind is, sure, economically, it'll do this, it'll do that, but you can't spend the money in the US you've already spent and where the budget deficit is and where the debts is. Where I think you get the biggest marginal change is this is handing really a huge plate of delicious food to both President Xi and Putin on a, on a plateau. And the question really is, in the disorder that will follow my naive forecast, whether President Xi uses this to actually do something material and military about Taiwan, and whether whatever happens in the US, Ukraine, due to lack of armament supply, is pushed into compromising with Russia, which allows Putin to prepare his troops for advances into southwestern Europe or southeastern Europe. Right. That's my Peter, may I, may I reply to uh, <laughs> uh, David? I Typically, David, I agree with almost everything you say, but not now. <laughs> First of all, it's not a cult. Sure, there are those who would represent a cult, and they are real Trump supporters. But there is a protest vote, which is fueled by crime. There's so much crime. You've got these sanctuary cities that allow 
a nonviolent crime like shoplifting to go unpunished, which everyone sees on their television screens. I think also that uh, Trump is helped powerfully by all of the indictments and the appearances in court. That helps him. So a lot of people who don't really like Donald Trump say, my God, at least he would be better than Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. As to President Xi and uh, Donald Trump, I mean, Donald Trump is making a campaign that says, look, I'm the tough guy. During my previous term, no wars were started. Nothing like Ukraine or Gaza. So uh, that's a bit counterintuitive, uh, David. Well, well let me. You let see, me, President okay. Xi and Trump, uh, first of all, President Putin and Trump, well, uh, Trump thinks they're buddies, so that's nice. That's I don't change my forecast there. Uh, <laughs> President Xi and Trump, don't forget that uh, on the Fox News interview, which uh, Trump just gave, uh, he actually blamed Taiwan when asked if he would intervene on behalf of Taiwan if it was invaded. He actually went off on a tangent, but the tangent was significant in that he said, well, they took away our chip business. You know, they stole our business. So I'm not 100% sure that Trump Mark II, uh, in, in, you see, you move from a geopolitical structure to uh, to whatever you're doing in world affairs, you move to a transaction base. And I am not sure that uh, the playing out that Trump will support Taiwan, as I think uh, poor old honest Joe would support Taiwan in the case of a serious blockade. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I I think because with with uh, Mr. Trump, you never know what he's going to do because it is transactional. He doesn't have any really solid solid <laughs> beliefs. He just goes with what he thinks benefits him. And tomorrow he could say the opposite about Taiwan. You have no idea what's going to happen. But I mm-hmm. I also I don't agree that that especially Democrats, especially independents, won't be supporting Trump. The question that's often asked in campaigns is. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Now, recently, I think it was Economist uh, had a bunch of charts and showed in many cases people are better off, but they don't feel they're better off. Mm -hmm. Many people don't feel they're better off at all. And for Mm -hmm. some reason, they look back and inflation was lower and, and, you know, they felt they could afford more uh, four years ago, whether that's true or not. They forget about covid and the pandemic and and a few other things and foreign policy isn't at the top of their minds so you know i think he's he's in with a real chance with with some of these people i remember ronald reagan's slogan was it's morning in america well trump's slogan and actually biden's is it's night in america it's but it's a question of who can better handle the night and all the demons and you know unfortunately a lot of people think it's donald trump David, on your predictions, let me ask you, you have Biden beating Trump in a in a presidential showdown. If for some reason Nikki Haley became the Republican candidate instead of Trump, would she beat Biden? Oh, she'd, she'd absolutely slaughter him. I mean, uh, forgive me, I'm, I'm very foreign and very far away. But I mean, she's about the only sane person on the political scene in America <laughs> whom I could possibly vote for. I mean, and now that she's been accused of fomenting, aiding and abetting uh, the riots, the Washington riots, 
the famous uh, what date? What was the date again? The sixth of December. I can't mm. remember. Anyway, right. January. Oh, January. 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 But when was... she was actually when she was actually at the time the UN ambassador, UN ambassador, and not even there. I mean, she'd be such a relief to the world system. Mm. Donald Trump was confusing her, though, with Nancy Pelosi, Nancy I think, Pelosi. wasn't it? So, <laughs> well, well, was well, well, which doesn't recommend him any more no, no. the president. That's true. That's true. But it, but it doesn't hurt him, which is... Which no, is but that's why now. I say, that's yeah. why I say it's a cult. When you've got a cult, you can say anything. You can say anything you like, and it automatically becomes repeated and becomes the truth. And that, that's the basis of my... Yeah. Nikki Haley was actually opinion. out of the administration by then. She wasn't even UN ambassador. She wasn't even there, but I mean, yeah, she's she sound. Wasn't even, they weren't near there. She's sound. Yeah. Mm. Barry, let me ask you, we don't know a lot about uh, Donald Trump's plans, but one thing he has been talking about is this 10% tariff, the plan to impose a 10% tariff on all imported goods. I mean, wouldn't this basically destroy um, the global trading system once in. And it would certainly, I mean, it's a sort of like a a hammer to sort of, you know, to try and reindustrialize the US. Wouldn't this have a huge impact on both the US economy um, and on the global economy as well? Yes, I think it would be destructive. But you never know how these things actually play out. Uh, Donald Trump likes to call himself the tariff man. He, he's the guy who started these tariffs, right? So he, he wants more. Well, he will have advisors. Uh, look, we're assuming Donald Trump is going to be president. I mean, I'm not in that position of saying this is an inevitability or even a likelihood, but it's a possibility. Hmm. And I don't think he would have a trade advisor like Mr. Lighthizer, who is his trade rep in, the, in, the, in his term, uh, would not go along with a generalized 10% tear up on everything. That's madness. But Donald Trump says it. But as Mark said, he says lots of things. And I, David, I'll come back to you again. First of all, I reject the cult business. And number two, I reject the notion that um, somehow this guy is, is I, I forgot your point. It was, um, oh, remind me, Mark. He was saying that, um, well, he hates the Europeans. Look, he does. He wants to hammer the Europeans and he wants to go after all the he's a tough guy. And the, the, the public here in this country is beginning to say, we need a tough guy. We don't mm-hmm. care. If we forgive him all his problems, which are obvious. Everyone knows it. They forgive and women, too. And by the way, he's more moderate on abortion than some of the Republican candidates who have now dropped out. I just but- don't think that Donald Trump is probably as dangerous as could be. And the point I forgot was, I don't think our institutions are threatened. You know, oh, he can't. So he, has to, he has to deal with a Congress. He's not going to upset a Congress. Um, he has to get things through. He, he did appoint a lot of people to the Supreme Court, but that was within the law. The, the, the United States institutions are not to be compared with what existed in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. But I mean, he before you ever get to tariffs, Trump in office bashing the Europeans, bashing NATO, would immediately mean the breakdown of international uh, power structure, which is at, that's at true. Least, but David, uh, but, he did but, that but, before, and it didn't no, break no, down. No, but it, it is totally different. You are now in a war situation. You are handing a victory to Putin. You are handing an opportunity to shit to do something about Taiwan. It is totally different to the first time 
when you were based upon transactional economics of a primitive ilk. Now you're based with dealing with containment, not of a hypothetical uh, need to dissuade people from war, but a, an absolute need to contain war. And you wouldn't get to the tariffs before the whole system for doing that broke down. Mark, if we did get to the tariffs, got as far as that, what, what, how would your members feel? I mean, presumably well, well, this would be far more damaging than the first time around because it would have the potential to be a lot more inflationary than it was the first time around. Yeah, absolutely. And China, and for China, you know, what's been mooted and who knows is even higher, 25% or, or something like that. Again, we don't know that's going to happen, but as it happens, we're having um, the American chambers in, in Asia Pacific are having conversation today with the special committee on China from the, from the House with the staffers. And I think we'll get a, there'll be, there'll be, these are Republicans mainly, they'll be advisors to Trump in a, or whoever in a Republican administration, to Nikki Haley as well, if she's there. And uh, their thinking, I think, uh, will be pretty uh, influential at one point or another. And so uh, I'll get a better better read today of what they're thinking. I think it's probably pretty strong, and I think it is probably in the area that uh, that Barry has mentioned. So, Barry, let me ask you finally. I mean, New Hampshire voters, they are well known for being independent-minded, aren't they? And they've thrown up surprises several times in the past in, uh, in presidential races. I mean, maybe are we all wrong? And, and, you know, perhaps we're underestimating here Nikki Haley's chances. Well, that would be great because then we'd have a real race and we could talk about Super Tuesday and we could talk about the other primaries. Um, so it's very important. And you're right. New Hampshire is independent. Uh, live free or die is their slogan. And they have a lot of independent voters who, you know, this is almost the Boston suburbs in southern New Hampshire. Uh, those people could vote for Haley. So there could be a surprise. But at the same time, the polls were very accurate in Iowa about the caucuses. So it's, it's risky to challenge them. Uh, but we'll know a lot more in, well, 24 hours. Okay. Well, look, let's move on um, and, and come out to this, uh, this direction. Hong Kong stocks, they sank for a second day yesterday as pessimism over China's recovery deepened after Premier Li Chang last week indicated at Davos that Beijing won't use massive stimulus due to fears of long-term risk and mounting local government debts. The Hang Seng has hit a 15-month low. It's getting close now to a level which has been unseen since 2009. The China Enterprises Index is very close to the lowest level since 2005. On the mainland, the CSI 300, uh, that's down at a five-year low. I mean, David, what is your assessment of what's going on here? Because this route seems to be accelerating, doesn't it? Well, I think the problems, uh, I'd say a couple of things. Number one is the route is to do with the failure to surgically deal with the structural problems of China in any other, any other way, <clears throat> but to add more excess capacity by stimulating investment rather than the consumer who doesn't desire to be stimulated because he's too pessimistic about everything. <laughs> so everything that goes on adds to the deflationary bent in China by adding to capacity, which does not add to recovery. So that's number one thing that's going on. The second thing is in the Western markets, are, in fact, in all the other markets, you're not dealing with quite the same problem, though serious, as serious as it is. 
you're dealing with the obsession with interest rates and inflation and the week that people think inflation might be a little bit stickier, interest rates go up and markets go down and vice versa. At some point in time, it won't be this rather boring story about what central banks will and will not do. It will be, good Lord, what are the world leaders going to do as the geopolitical uh, confrontation between the dictatorship alliance on the one hand and the democratic alliance on the other becomes slightly more significant than what goes on in the Fed, FOMC, or the ECB governing council. And that will be probably a couple of months down the road. Mm. Mark, are, you, are, you, are businesses as gloomy about China as investors are? Well, it's a mixture, right? And I think I've talked about this before. Most of our members, and not all of them, that run China operations for multinational companies are committed to one extent or another staying in China. But they're they're less committed about putting everything in China, and they're having trouble getting new investment. They're having trouble getting their their uh, headquarters interested in, in in supporting them to a greater extent. They're doing China plus one, China plus two, and other things. Not all of them, but many of them. And of course, what's happened in the past in the past month during January so far, I think hasn't made them or their or their headquarters uh, bosses any any happier, any more comfortable about yeah. China going forward. And part of it is they've been waiting for China to take action. That might uh, might at least lessen the uh, lessen lessen the burden and lessen the crisis. And so far, they're not. Whether that's because they can't or because it's it's, uh, it's something they don't want to do, that's not clear. But the signals are affecting everybody, including the stock markets, but of course investors, especially those that are in Europe and the United States. So yeah, they are affected. They're holding on. They still think China looks looks uh, promising going forward, but you know, these, uh, the news every day doesn't help. Mm. And um, Barry, we talked uh, uh, last week, I think, about um, the, the mood of US investors, which is pretty pessimistic um, on China. If anything, their mood seems to be getting worse because uh, the record selling that we've seen uh, since the beginning of the year has only increased in the last few days. Yeah, that's true. I think that, um, uh, you know, some of the experts that I talk to, and I certainly don't talk to that many, um, my friend at Arizona State University, who is just back from Beijing and Shanghai, said that he thinks this is a, an all-time low in the modern era in U.S.-China relations. And he didn't expect that. Uh, so it's bad. And I think the outflow of money continues. I think David is right. And by the way, David, I want to commend you on your, your observation about the military conflicts underway and how that become very dangerous with the Trump presidency. I think you're onto something there. But yes, I don't see there's any early sign. There was this track two business that has begun with the military talking on both sides. I think they're continue that. Uh, that is a good sign, but it's not very substantial. Mm. So, David, what it sounds like at the moment, uh, the government isn't taking the measures or the right measures that are needed to stimulate the the economy. It's trying to do things like stopping fund managers from selling stocks and banning short selling. But as we know, that only really has a, a temporary effect. What do they need to do if they want to try and halt this slide and restore confidence in the market? Oh, look, the first thing they need to do is to actually deal with the legacy problems, which involves writing down the debts, writing down the assets and starting afresh. 
now that's one thing. The second thing they need to do is to gear their stimulus to the consumer, not to more uh, state-owned enterprises and other heavy-duty players producing more unwanted girders to go into bridges which don't go anywhere. <laughs> so it's very. those are the two things. Now, it's very nice for me to sit here far away, but I will tell you that the major problem they face is beyond those two, two kind of thrusts of policy which are clear. They have a, a problem of all dictatorial Marxist uh, types of regime in that they have to acknowledge that uh, many of the policies, in fact, I would say all of the policies, have been wrong. <laughs> and if you do that, you're calling into question all sorts of things which are extremely naughty to even mention, like the supremacy of the Communist Party, the competence of its leadership, and a few other things which, you know, we discuss daily in our system, but which are a little more difficult to discuss in theirs. Mm. David's making a good point. It's interesting. I told you about the the risk meetings, critical risk meetings we have. We're actually having one in a in a few minutes uh, right here as well with a with a smaller group. But they mentioned the Israel uh, Hamas Hamas war. They didn't mention Ukraine as one of them. It was mentioned a little bit, but I think they didn't. First of all, I think it's an assumption by many of them, sort of what David has suggested, that it's it's going to be over sooner or later, and maybe, maybe and it will be in, in favor of Russia mm-hmm. in the end. They're mm-hmm. going to have to give way. What they don't think about are some, something very important is what David said, the implications of that and how it can affect the rest of Europe and, and geopolitics and uh, risk going forward, which is very substantial. So I think that's really important in the process. But the economics, it's just 2024, we already knew was going to be a a difficult year in terms of the economies, too, because U.S. economy, I don't know how it's going to perform, but probably not as strong as it it did in 2023. China is going to be better than many of the others, but we've just talked about the problems there. And uh, David and knows a lot more about Europe going forward. But all these sort of things weigh heavily on on these companies as you're trying to David, you mentioned that uh, these assets need to be written down. Who's going to take the losses? Who can afford to take the losses? Oh, the answer is the same old thing. I mean, you and I and all of us here have been through umpteen death restructurings, including the Asian (laughs) crisis. And it doesn't really matter which political regime you've got. The answer is always the same. You write down the assets, you bang the banks because they've financed all these assets with ridiculous loans. Then you recapitalize the banks and you take all the rotten assets out of the banks and put them on the state and the bank the state ends up with a huge um, balance sheet of dud assets and dud loans. And then you start again. And the way you start is not the way that China is doing it. You cannot inject more capacity into a deflationary system with excess capacity. You have to start with little old uh, Hung Chi-Hua, whoever he's called, who has an apartment which he bought and where the cost of holding that apartment is rocketing, not only because his salary is going down, but because inflation is going down, is deflation and increasing the mortgage costs of holding the apartment in the first place. So don't expect him to consume as long as that's the case. 
And, and Beijing is, is the only game in town, isn't it? They're, they're the only people with a clean balance sheet and a balance sheet's big enough to be able to take and absorb all these losses. But, but it's something they've not wanted to do so far. No, that's exactly right. Because it would be admitting they have been wrong. Mm. And that is a no-no. Bowie, are you uh, ready for all this oversupply or this overcapacity to start heading uh, your way? Because that's, that's sure. what it means, doesn't sure. it? It's going to be a good thing because... loads of EVs, loads of uh, electric vehicles coming over that can't be sold uh, in the, the US. EVs so... from China, that's another story. But I think in terms of just uh, goods coming in from China, that would be good for the American consumer. I mean, that would be good for Joe Biden because the, he could point to lower prices. And uh, if that happens, that would be a, a real strong plus for the Democrats. I think that uh, the Chinese and the Americans need each other. And I would think that you're going to see some progress because clearly with the United States being the dominant single uh, export market for, for China, uh, they don't want this economy to fall into, well, recession or even slower growth than we currently have. And I think that in terms of the United States, uh, we depend on China. I mean, you can't go anywhere without finding Chinese goods. And that's increasingly into capital goods as well as just consumer goods. So uh, I, I think there has to be some further development in a positive way in U.S.-China economic relations. I agree with Barry. I, he, although it could change any day, it could change the other way. But but since the Biden-Xi meeting, not dramatic changes, but they're talking to each other at several levels. There is military to military uh, discussions, climate change, other areas. Both both leadership realize exactly what Barry said. They depend heavily on each other. But there's so many forces on both sides that could could upset the apple cart very quickly. And David's actually mentioned a few of them uh, in what he said earlier. Mm. I mean, Barry, what a contrast, though, between Chinese markets and U.S. markets, as we saw earlier. Yes. Record highs in the Dow, in the S&P 500, in the NASDAQ 100, um, uh, although the, the, the rally is slowing compared to what we saw in the last couple of months of last year, but nevertheless, new all-time highs. Yeah, that's true. And I think this is a uh, positive development, obviously, for investors, but uh, we should remember that uh, prices uh, were last at record highs two years ago, and uh, now they've matched that, and they'll continue to go up because the earnings season that is underway is is not as bad as had been feared. So, yeah, when you've got a deflation, wrong <clears throat> word, when you've got inflation coming down, really no more than three and a half percent, and headed down, I think you've got record low unemployment. You've got jobs being created. I mean, here I am in Charleston, South Carolina. The traffic is, well, insane. And uh, Boeing's got 7,500 people out here building these 787s. Uh, so Boeing's got all kinds of problems. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But if you want to look at the South Carolina economy with BMW, with its biggest plant in the world, up in Spartanburg, South Carolina, this is, this is hardly a depressed area. This is a booming area. So I think that's good for the global economy. So when I hear you talk and about those things and, and talk about the strength of the economy and the data's been matching it, we had great retail sales data last week, industrial production data, housing data. How on earth can the Fed even be thinking about cutting interest rates once, let alone three times this year? 
Well, I think David has touched on this. The Fed is going to hold steady. I mean, that's why the tenure has gone back over 4%. And, you know, the expectations that of a really slowing economy was that then you'd have to have three, what, seven rate cuts? I think that's madness. I don't think there'll be a rate cut until uh, May. And at some point, don't forget the election coming up in this this uh, this calendar year. Um, they'll be, they'll cut rates because that would stimulate the economy. They'll say that it's, it's not anything to do with politics, but you know, uh, let's face it, Jerome Powell does not like uh, Donald Trump. Mm. Well, that'll be an interesting uh, relationship if we have part two of that. So that's that's for and, sure. And, and his term expires next year, probably, <laughs> as you may know. David, are you tempted to be a contrarian, sell the US and buy China? No. Not even at these sort of valuations? No. I mean, Look, I can at- see if I was a stock analyst that people like companies like Alibaba have been hammered into the ground and there is a value in China. But I also know that the only thing I'm good at is international relations. I'm not somebody who will make money out of stocks, never have. But if I was a stock picker and a stock analyst and knew what I was doing, of course there is value in China, and particularly in the high-tech area, where there is substantially less value in the U.S. because it's gone up so much. But the reason I say no is because I do not believe that the legal framework or the economic policy framework, or the ability to correct them is in place in China. So I'm not sure how safe my property rights are when I buy these things. But as regards fundamental value, I have no argument with that. For many, for several years, we've watched China go down. And that's, when the market goes down that much, value does emerge, undoubtedly. Mm. And we, we saw the, that situation where basically Tencent had a year's worth of its profits confiscated, didn't it, in effect, by the, uh, by the Chinese government. Yeah. Uh, that was the day when we actually were doing this program. And, we, and uh, I considered China as being a due diligence question, not a, not a valuation or fundamental ana- analytical question anymore. It had become overnight a due diligence question. Can you own something where this sort of thing can happen to you? Mm. Well, the foreign investors have come up with the answer um, to that. We, we've got a lot of central bank meetings coming up, haven't we? We've got the Bank of Japan today. We've got the Bank of Canada, the ECB this week, the Fed um, next week. Are, are these going to be pivotal pivotal meetings in the sense that they're going to tell us a lot more now about the chances of getting rate cuts and when they're likely to happen? Uh, well, my view is the Bank of Japan will continue with the tea ceremony The the major endeavor is not to clash your spoon with the ceramics of China. Uh, And therefore, um, new excuses will be found not to normalize monetary policy, which should have been done ages ago, not because the economy is booming, but because it is no longer apposite to have that sort of monetary policy in an economy which is not crashing. Uh, through the surface of the earth. But they will come up with another reason not to do it. There have been plenty of economic reasons. So nothing out of Japan. Hence, the yen is telling us the news that, you know, uh, uh, rates are not going to be normalized. Okay. In Europe, the situation is, of course, bad and getting worse. The figures of exports to the United States, to to China from Germany are, are highly critical because Germany is still economic heartland of Europe, and it's a manufacturing economy. So if it's not exporting to Europe, which it's not, 
mm-hmm. and it's not now exporting to China, you've got a problem. And I think the ECB will surprise us all by cutting rates sooner, or at least as soon as the United States does, because things are not good. And the Americans, I think Barry has described what's going to happen. It will There will be rate reductions starting later, less than expected, but they will come down. And of course, because the U.S. consumer is surely the eternal optimist on the face of the earth, there will be no recession. <laughs> yeah. And I hope, hope you're right. Can I comment briefly on Japan? Because I agree with David, of many of us, was that at least there was going to be a signal that Japan was going to move away from zero or less than zero interest rate policy. I don't think we're probably even going to get that signal mm. this time. Because of the earthquake? I, I agree. Yeah, part of the earthquake, partly wages. Mm-hmm. Wages are are rising, and it looks like they may rise close to the target rate. Which you, the minimum is three point six percent, I guess, to to uh, to to outpace inflation or even even higher. But I still think, for various reasons, there's caution, and um, it doesn't look like there's going to be a change. I could be wrong, but I don't think they're going to move, even though there are very good reasons why they should, which David partly outlined. Well, that means, Mark, you're in the tea ceremony camp. Yes, I am. <laughs> so, Barry, the state I have, I have, I have been for about forty years or so. <laughs> <laughs> Barry, this data-dependent Fed has got two very important pieces of data coming up before we get to the next Fed meeting. We've got uh, Q4 GDP growth at the uh, at the end of this week, and then we've also got inflation data as well. The Fed's preferred measure of um, inflation, core PCE uh, price index. Uh, which is expected to be 0.2% month on month, 3% for the full um, year. Um, presumably, if, if this is true, if the Fed is data dependent, everything could change depending upon these two pieces of new information. I don't think there's going to be any surprise, though. Uh, I, I don't think, uh, you know, growth is going to come in for all of 2023 at around 2 2.5%. That's it. Um, in terms of uh, the PCE, uh, I think they'll be happy with that number. I do think the Fed meeting is going to be important for the tea leaves, to stay with that uh, analogy, uh, that, um, you know, what are certain members of the FOMC seeing in terms of future rate cuts or future economic activity? That'll be useful, but there won't be any rate action coming Okay. Well, great. Thank you for your thoughts this morning. A very interesting, very lively discussion as well. Mm -hmm. You heard there Barry Wood, our US economics correspondent, who's in South Carolina this morning. David Roche, who is president and global strategist at Independent Strategy. And also Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Frederick Chu, Managing Director at Magnum Research. It's Bank of Japan Monetary Policy Day today as well, so we'll have a view from Japan with John Byrne, who is Principal Economist at the Asian Development Bank. Have a great day. Money Talk.